Hello, everyone, and welcome to Twig 244. Here with me today to talk shit and talk shop are Philip Black, game economist at Game Economist Consulting. Hey, hey. Mishka Katkoff, founder of Deconstructor of Fun. Hello. Jen Donahoe, marketing executive consultant at Jade Inferno Consulting. Howdy, everyone. And then you've got me, Laura Taranto, head of new games at Big Fish. So we're starting with a quick update on Women's World Cup. Oh, the Women's World Cup. I am extremely sad. Hopefully this is not a spoiler. It happened days ago. I don't know if everyone knows, but Phil lives in Sweden. So congratulations to Phil on the upset for the women's national team in penalty kicks. I'm so sad that Sweden won. But as a keeper, as an old school keeper who's retired now because my knees don't work anymore, Sweden's keeper was a rock star. If you want to see premier top level keeping, she just absolutely rocked it and got player of the match. So I'm always excited when a keeper gets player of the match. The U.S. keeper, Alyssa Nair, is also a baller. Scoring a PK, it was like a goalie outing. So I don't know if you guys watched the World Cup, but Spain versus Netherlands. A lot of Nordic countries, Mishka. A lot of Nordics in there. Yeah. Japan versus Sweden. England versus Colombia. Australia versus France. I'm calling Japan for the win. I don't know if anyone else has a call they would like to make at this time. I think being a keeper in football or soccer is tough because like everybody expects you to score. Like when you don't score, you kind of messed up. So it's never about the keeper, it's about the kicker. Yeah, no. That's a not nice thing. It's not like hockey where like the goalie really like is important. Like, I mean, I'm not saying that the keeper is not important in football, but like in hockey, they have to stop like 35 shots. And in football, you stop two, you're a hero. She stopped 11, the Sweden keeper. Wow. Musovic? Yaha. I'm not sure how to say her name. Yeah, no, she was a baller. Good for her. Good for her. I can do a little bit of update. I haven't been on for a while because Nordics were closed down. So every summer, basically, they closed down all the schools, all the preschools, or the kindergartens. Essentially, you're forced to take a, a month off. And now my eldest one, the Californian girl, is going to school. So she's going to enjoy those six-week holidays that is in in Nordics, and that puts a long break. But I have to mention one thing. We were in a family trip, and we're in Stockholm. I haven't been in Stockholm for a while, where Phil resides. And, you know, <laughs> I like Finland, but Stockholm is on another level. It's like, you compare Helsinki to Stockholm, it's like... Uh, here, here. Cheers. <laughs> it would be like comparing, like, name a small town in Oregon, like Beaverton or something, to like Portland? San Diego. You know, no, Portland is oh, a little Portland's bit Oh, Portland's too much of Helsinki. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's yeah. tone it, it down it, a little bit. It's small. Like, like Helsinki is so much smaller. Like Stockholm, yeah, it's posh. It's nice. It's beautiful. So I was there and I was like, we need to do a DOF event here. So we're planning one. <laughs> it's a very royal place. You guys are making me blush. We can turn this into Sweden as an episode. Queen of the Nordics. Yeah. <laughs> I think we can just crown it right here. Yeah, I'm, I'm going back this Friday, so we have a, a little wedding, but it's in south of Sweden, Skåne area. By the way, you haven't talked about like what games you're playing for a while. Well, I admit to all kinds of games I'm playing that I'm embarrassed to admit I'm playing. Why? Because it's like Gossip Harbor and Royal Match and Toon Blast. Those are great games. <laughs> I am proud to play those games. Yeah. I know I'm not playing Baldur's Gate. Like this is, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I need to get on this. 
I played Grimguard Tactics for a while. I think that game was well made. I just looked at it like, well, was it? It was, it was really nice. Like the balancing is off. They need a little bit of a game economist to help them out. I kind of churned because of such a poor balancing. So Phil, maybe a case for you <laughs> if they start looking or they should be looking for you, actually. I'm available. And I started playing Little Big Robots. That's a good one. I, I think it launched today. It's just like if you like Brawl Stars, this is kind of like Brawl Stars with mechs, but it's nicely balanced. It's 2v2. I'm really enjoying it. So just tips for listeners, because every time I listen to this and Laura mentions some new game and then I'm downloading it. So I thought that it would be good to hear like what everybody's playing because I haven't been playing a lot of games as of late and I'm kind of ashamed to admit that. It's summer. Yeah. It's summer. There's a few games that Laura and I were talking about doing a deep dive on in upcoming episodes. Gossip Harbor is one of them. We talked about Rush Royale a couple weeks ago. Such a good game. Yes. It's such a good game. I'm a little bit addicted. However, the pinch is real. (laughs) The onboarding flow is I'm a little bit overwhelmed as a new player. Anyway, we will save that for a later episode as we got sucked into some of the games that we covered at a high level. Matchmasters. Yeah, Matchmasters is a good one. Matchmasters is good. For sure. Yeah. I wanted to shill a couple of things, so... As always, <laughs> expect it if I'm on the episode. So Gamescom, it's coming. It's around the corner. On 21st, there's going to be a first Deconstructor Fun event. We're doing it together with our sponsor, Exola. There's going to be MasterCard and Debcom also sponsoring. It's the no alcohol event, thanks to Ethan. Those are actually very popular, and we're taking them to other places. Very inclusive, very nice, very cool to kind of hang out with people playing tabletop games and not necessarily having a drink. So please sign up. I think it's only for those who have the ticket for the Gamescom conference, but those these, this event has been very popular and we're going to probably take it to some other places as well. And the second event that we're doing with Phil is the whiskey tasting with AppsFlyer and Play Ventures, and that's going to be on 23rd. And there's definitely going to be alcohol in, in this event. It's literally in the name. So this event is unfortunately full. I've been looking at the list, so I'm trying to open up a little bit more positions. So we're kind of over it. And then expecting that, that there will be no-shows. If nobody is not no-showing, then it's going to be really full. Hopefully, somebody no-shows so that there's more space. But looking forward to Gamescom and looking forward to hanging out to Phil. Because we booked the same hotel. <laughs> I'll tell the story. I, I sent him the uh, hotel it link. It was an accident. It went terribly wrong. I sent him a hotel link. And he's like, dude, this hotel is like 40-minute walk from the venue. And I was like, yeah, but the gym next door is amazing. <laughs> And then he's like, send me the gym link. He's like, okay, yes, we're staying at this hotel. (laughs) So we're prioritizing correctly. And I might just say that we will be very pumped the full time of the event. (laughs) Literally, we're going to be pumped. We're going to be pumping iron. We're going to be down in creatine. We'll have whey afterwards. This is going to be great. Okay, Arnold. Yes, it's called Training's Lair. (laughs) Yeah, it it looks like a German old school gym. And they all probably only play Rammstein on on like a loop. So when you see us, you'll see us. Anyway, let's go through more important stuff. All right. It's been two weeks since our last correction, most notably because Cress isn't here to make any corrections. <laughs> and the rest of us are brilliant and have nothing to, to fix. All right. Just kidding. Cress, we miss you. By the way, Cress is still on vacation. We will be back next week, everybody. So mm. for quick hits, here we go. A couple of market updates from Circana, which is formerly NPD. This is a U.S. number. So U.S. hardware, software, and accessory sales have reached $4.7 billion in June of 2023. This was the second biggest June of all time behind June of 2021. 
Platika will acquire the Uta Games portfolio for $89.4 million. Wow, it's pretty big. I think they're going after a lot of the social casino apps. On the UA side, Meta rolled back Scan 4 to Scan 3 due to a bug on Apple side, which I think is now fixed as of this recording. So just for all the UA folks, that's going on. Game performance. Okay, Nintendo posted an operating profit of $1.3 billion thanks to strong game sales and one big movie. I think you all know it. At least Ethan's kids do. Tears of the Kingdom has shipped 18.5 million copies since its launch, selling through 15.7 million. Breath of the Wild lifetime sales is at 30.65 million. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 is coming November 10th, as announced in an official teaser, and the return of slide canceling. Big deal if you're in the community, right, Phil? Big deal. Final Fantasy 16, right, if I can read Roman numerals, failed to meet the high end of Square Enix's sales expectations, citing slow adoption of the PS5, while also committing to increasing support for Xbox platforms in the future. Guess who finally overtook Candy Crush to have the number one top-grossing worldwide game in July, according to Data AI? Royal Match, the game that I'm playing. And everyone should be playing, according to Laura. They also overtook Candy Crush on downloads as well. I think this is the first month that this happened. And Monopoly Go is closing in on CoinMaster. I think they actually might have topped in this month, too. So, wow. In revenue? In revenue, yes. Oh, wow. Ooh. I might need to issue a correction. Let's see. (laughs) Go pull that up now while I I finish the last point. So closures and layoffs. The Embracer Impact is starting. Danish studio Campfire Cabal has reportedly been shut down. So that wraps up quick hits. All right. So as we look up the Monopoly Go versus Coinmaster numbers, I'm going to issue an update. It is not a correction. It's an addition. So last week we covered PVP examples in match three games, and I cited some that I knew. And one person on the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group kindly pointed out another. So it's not that I was incorrect. There was another one that was an event. It's in Candy Crush Jelly, and it's called Royal Championship. It looks like an asynchronous event, and the goal is to cover the board with jelly, as much jelly as you can before your opponent. So thank you for that update. It was a very close July between Coinmaster and Monopoly Go. Monopoly Go Ooh, came in at 57.3 million and Coinmaster was one rank above it. It was at 59.1 million dollars. This is from App Magic. So I th- I think with ad revenue, which Scopely is really good at developing and growing, I think Monopoly Go probably took the cake this month. Yeah. Oh wow. I mean, with the off-platform payments, I don't know. I don't remember if Monopoly Go has it, but I know the rest of the portfolio at Scopely pretty much does. So it might be the biggest one. Great time for Eric to go on vacation. He's really missing out on all this fun. Yeah. Diablo, Immortal Numbers, Monopoly Go killing it. Good times. Looking at Data AI, a similar trend. The worldwide number five is Coinmaster with 84.5 million. Number six is Monopoly Go, 72 million. So very, very close. We'll keep an eye on this, everybody. We should do like a charity, you know, one of those temperature gauges and see when Monopoly Go finally passes Coinmaster. Yeah, shout out to Scopely. I love how resilient they are. Like they've been making that game for a long ass time. And they're like, no, we're just going to make it. It's going to be great. We're just going to do it. 
Uh, I think they push a lot of their games for a long, but Avatar is the only one that I know that kind of was canceled despite like a long tribe, but pretty much all the other ones. There have been others. Yeah, there have been others. There was the Breaking Bad one. That's very personal as somebody worked on that. Yeah, I worked on Breaking Bad as well. There was another one last year or two years ago. It was kind of an RPG one. I totally forget the name, but maybe we can reach out to some of our Scopely friends and see if they want to tell us some of the secrets to why it's so successful, especially the marketing team. Guys, Like, I know the product's great, but I just got to give a shout out to the marketing team who are on fire with what they are doing on their side and the UA side. Marketers never get credit. I actually think as much of the game team getting credit should be the marketing team getting credit on this one. 100%, 100%, especially managing those IPs and everything else that they have going on. It's amazing. But I wanted to talk about another company that is doing amazing things, but it's a little bit puzzling for me, and that is Netflix. And the news was that they launched a game controller app for playing games on your TV. And just to go through the news, basically Netflix game controller lets you use your phone as a controller after pairing with your TV in order to play the games available through Netflix services. It's not a physical device, important to remember. The end of last year, Netflix games boss, Mike Verdu, said that Netflix was exploring cloud gaming offerings. So this is kind of like adding to what they're doing. He also noted that the company would be opening a new gaming studio in Southern California, led by Chaco Sani, a former executive producer on Overwatch at Blizzard. He didn't see Netflix competing in the same space as PlayStation Xbox and positioned them somewhere in between mobile and three AAA console developers. Till date, Netflix has launched about 40 games, I think over 50 now when I was looking at Data AI. They have 16 games being developed at the moment in-house, plus 70 more games developed by their partners. My take on the Netflix news, so not only the controller, but this controller kind of reminded me that we haven't talked about Netflix for a good year. I'm a huge fan of the organization. I read the book, No Rule Rules, and I was like, you know, I'm very excited and very um, affected by that book. And I think it was fantastic and I became an instant fan. But there's something that I'm not understanding about Netflix games. I mean, most of their games that they've released haven't really had an impact. I think 20 of the games, and overall the list was 80, 20 of the games have more than 1 million in total installs. And that's really not a lot if you consider the uh, the audience and the size of, of Netflix app. The biggest games when you go through it is like, I think the biggest one was like 6 million downloads, and that's too hot to handle, of course. Uh, the next one was SpongeBob Get Cooking, Stranger Things 1984, and Asphalt Extreme. And to my knowledge, if I'm correct, all these games have been previously launched as either a Steam game or a free-to-play game. So when you're looking at the full catalog of what they have. And the main difference between what is happening now as they're launched under Netflix is that the monetization have been removed. So either there's no microtransactions or there's just no price tag when you get that game. And talking to some people who have been working with Netflix, the price that Netflix pays to republish these games that are often even older than five, six years is very good. And looking at the public information of the salaries that Netflix is paying, as well as, again, the word on the streets, they are paying their employees very handsomely. And by that, I mean, think about a good salary and then quadruple that, and that will be your Netflix salary. I think we can put specific numbers on this. So California passed a law where they have to disclose the base salary. It doesn't include equity. And Netflix is really interesting in how they compensate people. You can take straight cash. You don't even need to take equity. 
you can get that choice. And so, you know, we're talking three to $500,000 a year for some of these employees. And it only goes up from there. And we're talking, you know, somewhere from a senior engineer all the way to a product manager earning this type of money. It is unbelievable what they pay top of market. Yes. Those are six figure numbers or seven figure numbers as well. We're getting close to seven. (laughs) The word on the street is like the seven figures are not, I mean, they're rare, but not uncommon as a salary. So shout out to those taxpayers. Anyways, I'm puzzled because till date, the cost of this endeavor of Netflix games must be pretty big. They're paying a lot to their employees. They're growing the team quite heavily. They're acquiring new studios and now paying the salaries of those studios. They're acquiring a lot of older games at a premium price and then relaunching them under Netflix uh, to their subscribers. And if their strategy is to build this gaming business to retain the subscription customers, I just don't understand how come they're buying games that are best have 15 hours of gameplay. And clearly most of these games is not even hitting home when you look at the download numbers. So very, very puzzled about the strategy. Curious to hear what you think, because I've heard only great things about Verdue. And as I said, I've only read great things about Netflix as an organization, but this strategy on mobile, and I think I know a little bit about mobile. To me, this is a mystery. I have no idea what's going on. I'm not Chris, so I'll just be nice. It's a mystery. But again, success is not linear. Maybe there will be like the sort of a come to Jesus moment and they will pivot to something that is a little bit more interesting than relaunching old titles that nobody's really playing at this moment and kind of don't have the longevity. They might have been fun games like six years ago, but this company has been sort of a puzzle. It's not just this weird mobile stuff that they're doing where you go into the app store, like you would download any normal app, then you have to sign into your Netflix account or you get linked into the app store from the Netflix homepage. But remember, they're also placing a bet on AAA. They announced that they're trying to hire for a AAA first person shooter. And it's always been unclear, kind of hanging in the background, how they're actually going to deliver this, which the obvious solution being streaming, which they've talked about. So they have just this huge bundle of bets. And it's just unclear to me at the end of the day, what they get out of this. And it seems like there's an acquisition story here, which is that they've gotten really nervous about declining acquisition numbers. And when you're subscription-based business, it's acquisition and it's minimizing churn. Those are the two things you need to do. And most people were talking about games as minimizing churn or as perhaps increasing the retention of the service. I think that's bullshit. I think they were always after trying to acquire more users to the platform. And they thought that games were a way to do this. Like Reed Hastings came out and he said, our biggest competitor seems to be Fortnite at one point, that they're really competing mm-hmm. for our share. And I think especially when you start to look at Roblox and how significant Roblox is in terms of hours played and its reach, 300, again, 350 million MAU at a very specific age demo. If you're fighting for attention span, if you're fighting for engagement, it looks really scary when you start to look at the future. But this is like the wrong strategy. Like every tech company has failed at this. It feels like the thing that they should have done that I hope they ended up moving to once this initiative is is over is being able to license their IP out just as Disney has beforehand, because ultimately like that's the problem they need to solve right now is making that IP valuable. And they're slowing themselves up by not getting things like a Bridgerton match three. Again, thank you, Ethan. Why is this not on my doorstep? Why am I not playing Bridgerton match three? Not only would it do a lot to enhance the IP, but it'd also open up some revenues for them now because they can monetize in a free-to-play way. It's completely inconsistent with how live service games run to run this as a subscription service. So I agree with you, but it seems like they're just throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. Like they do $30 billion a year in revenue. Like what is this in terms of a bet? This is maybe $100 million a year bet right now. It seems like it might be worth in that context. I just, I can't see the out, the light at the end of the tunnel. You guys are doing a little bit of looking backwards to 
set their strategy for what they're doing going forward, which their go-forward strategy is very different. Looking backwards, the reason why they kind of brought all of those games on, many of which were you know not very good or they were existing free-to-play games, was just to establish something and to start testing their SDKs and to start understanding how that would work. It's absolutely an ecosystem strategy. And I'm for sure in the camp of don't count Netflix out. And I also support anybody pumping money into the game industry in today's economic adventure environment. Like this is a good thing that they are doing this and their new games and what they are doing going forward will absolutely evolve. They are going to have more wins. They are going to have the Bridgertons and the Love is Blinds and all of the different games oriented on their IP. All of that's coming. It's just they needed to have something to get started and to test their systems. In my personal opinion, I know folks at Netflix, and so I don't, I'm not giving away any secrets that I have. The other thing about them is you can see in how they're hiring and what they're paying is they're working with only high-quality folks. Like anyone now doing new products for them are like really great folks. The developers are solid. The IP that they're making is great. And they're really trying to have, you know, hit wins. So with the controller that, by the way, right now is only available on iOS and isn't actually tied to anything yet, again, they're trying to start to get things out there to start testing. And so they are going to obviously do cloud things. So maybe it's finally someone who's going to battle Microsoft in the cloud gaming sphere that all the global governments are worried is going to, you know, Microsoft is going to go, oh, maybe it's actually Netflix who's going to be the competitor in cloud gaming. Oh, just kidding. The only thing I'll add is I think one thing is most new games are going to fail, right? So I see this as like a dating strategy. If you want to meet someone, you got to have a really big funnel at the top. So they're taking a lot of bets to figure out, assuming that probably most are going to fail. So I feel like that approach, I'm on board. They're going to probably get something out. And just to echo what Jen said, if you're starting with a new platform, new monetization strategy, new teams, you're going to do exactly what Phil said. You're going to throw things at the wall and see what sticks. And what they're also getting is a ton of data. They are just learning. And I think that will better inform the pipeline that they're now building for what hopefully will be the viral hit that they want that does get those subscribers. The only thing I also I will say is I don't know about a Bridgerton match three. I feel like there needs to be a bigger element of dress up because one of the most amazing things about that is the costumes. And I don't want to call it like the dating, but it's not dating. It's just like hardcore romance. I would lean into those themes for whatever game they make. It's a simulation category game. It is not a match three game, Phil. Like I appreciate your shooter insights on this one. We can make a love Nikki out of this. I think match three would do just as well. I think, sure, let's go love Nikki. I'd take any of them over nothing or the crap they're spewing out right now because I don't think it's been high quality games. It certainly hasn't been a live service game. Let's put it that way. They put some solid like indie stuff out there, but none of it's live service. And this is what I can't get at is like, okay, we're talking about seeing what sticks. What is the end funnel here? Like all of this is just going to be a cost center. Like these things are not going to have direct revenue that they're going to generate because they don't have IAP. They're just going to be cost centers. So it all comes down to like how Netflix chooses to attribute someone who plays one of the games in their portfolio. They have to make a ton of inference on what it means when that person plays the game. What does that mean in terms of extending the subscription? Do they do it by a month? Okay, does that mean the user has an LTV of $10? But it's much harder to draw what it means to win here than what it means to win in free-to-play or live service. Yeah. When did they start buying studios? I feel like it was only three-ish years ago. 
was Night School, I believe they started with, which is a very small studio that was not doing live service stuff. And Next Games, I think, was the next big one. That was a couple of years later. It was like 2020. It takes time to build these games, right? I think the games that they released were the games that already probably existed, right? So Correct. if I could build and launch an awesome game with a new IP on a new platform in six months, I mean, people just, just throw money at me. But I feel like things are coming. My guess is things are coming. Yeah, but I mean, first of all, like you don't have to worry about monetization when you're making these games. So that's already a big thing to take off your shoulders. You just make a fun game that retains. I mean, like chess or poker, like almost what they're looking for. But I don't know. Like I'm very puzzled because I'm looking at these games that they're launching and you're saying like, you know, they're trying things out and seeing what sticks. It's like, how many years do you have to launch games that are sunset over again on their own platform just to see that, hey, we paid, you know, millions for this game and now 65,000 people or 300,000 people downloaded it, played it for a bit, and they're not playing it anymore. I'm, I'm just curious of like how they are evaluating this. And, and maybe they just have so many shows and so many stuff going on that they're not worried. And sometimes like with their TV shows, something may pop up later. So they launch something and it doesn't stick. And then like two years later, it becomes a hit show. Maybe they're kind of like expecting that. But I think gaming is just so different. You can't just put in a back catalog and expect hits come out from a back catalog. But I don't think that's their strategy. Mm. Like, I guess that's what they did to Laura's point, to get data, to understand, to get their system set up. They've only started this like less than two years ago. Mm -hmm. So what we see now isn't necessarily indicative of where they're going. And I think they are going to look at live service. They recognize, just like everybody else in the world, if you don't continually update, even Apple Arcade, right? We've talked about like the differences between the two. They have a section now for like game updates. They are calling out that these are not one and done. No ad, no IAP is not the only core benefit of these games anymore. You have to come back and you have to keep coming back. And so, again, I think that was what they did. That's not what they're going to continue doing. I wanted to talk to you about Heroic Labs. Building a successful game is hard enough without worrying about building your own game tech as well. Heroic Labs provides a comprehensive game stack to help you get your game into market faster and scale beyond the competition. With their Unity game framework Hero, you can cut development and prototyping time in half and quickly add social, economy, and reward systems to grow your game. Satori, the LiveOps platform built specifically for the games industry, lets you run live events, A-B tests, deliver dynamic content to players, and always keep your game growing. Nakama, the industry's leading open source game server, lets you develop locally, providing all social and competitive features for your game, and then seamlessly transition to their Heroic Cloud-hosted service and easily scale to meet the largest of audience demands. Find out how to get started at HeroicLabs.com. The games industry is experiencing unprecedented growth, with global revenues projected to reach a staggering $268 billion by 2025. But with more players than ever connecting across platforms and devices, how can your game stand out against the competition? AppsFlyer has created AppsFlyer for Games to help you unlock your player's true LTV by providing a wealth of game measurement solutions, unique industry insights, and proven best practices. Our dedicated hub is packed with innovative products, industry partnerships, and unrivaled expertise to ensure your game 
game brand adapts and thrives. We understand that every game is unique and AppsFlyer's data-driven insights allow us to cater to your specific needs. We know that in today's evolving landscape, staying ahead of the curve is crucial. Trust in AppsFlyer for games to guide you through this exciting journey. We have the tools, the knowledge, and the passion to help you succeed in this ever-expanding landscape. Together, we'll conquer new worlds, both real and fantasy, break records, and create gaming experience that leave a lasting impact. Get in touch with AppsFlyer for games today and unleash your game's true potential. AppsFlyer for games, supercharging the gaming landscape. All right, moving on. Talking about Assassin's Creed. I feel like we're covering all the topics that would trigger Cress. <laughs> <laughs> so Ubisoft has finally quantified its promise to make this year's Assassin's Creed game shorter than recent franchise entries. It's 20 hours to play through, 30 hours for completionists, according to an interview with a French YouTuber. Mirage's playing time to the main adventure will be shorter than the three previous games and shorter than all other games in the franchise. It'll sell for $50 instead of the now standard 70. While Ubisoft is one of the main companies that prided themselves on longer play times, they're actually now using this as a little bit of a pivot as a selling point. Now, I put this in because I actually was very curious to hear Phil's take, but apparently the playtimes has been quite a point that's divided fans, like whether you want a really long game or a short game. So some are like really excited about this, some are not. And when I've played console games, yeah, I can easily sink 100 hours into them. So Phil, please translate for us what this means in reality. I tend to think of modeling a player as spending more money in products when the lifetime value of any purchase they make can be amortized over the course of their experience in the game. So if you're going to think about your time horizon within a particular game as, let's say, a year, then I might spend $500 up front. But every time I use that item, I'm getting some sense a dividend payment. I'm getting some sense of utility from using that item, particularly if it's a durable item. Let's call it a cosmetic. And so when we think about games getting longer and single player games getting longer and longer, then any MTX purchase you make seems in some sense cheaper because you can amortize it over that longer life cycle. And the increases in completion time for an Assassin's Creed game have dramatically increased. They've tripled. I think it was around 10 hours that they were analyzing and it's gone to somewhere around 30 hours in the most recent Valhalla. And they've also, of course, increased MTX significantly in this franchise, despite being like a single player linear story is that you still have the ability to buy cosmetics, you still have the ability to buy gameplay affecting items. But if they're going to shrink the amount of time it takes to complete a campaign, it seems to me like that would just put a tighter squeeze on MTX and we'd see those things go down. I think one of the things that's tricky for them to manage is what is the relationship between players having completed the game and what is the relationship between that and them purchasing the next title. So we might imagine like if you completed the single player campaign, maybe there's a boost in next year's purchase probability for the next title. Maybe that's a countervailing factor, but overall, when you start to cut down the amount of time that players want to spend in a particular game where you're producing less content, you know, I'd expect to see revenues go down correspondingly. And $50, by the way, seems really dumb. I don't understand why they're not pushing this to 70. Like, I think we know now that games are pretty price inelastic. I'm surprised to see them stick at $50 when they could have at least gone to 60 or 70, regardless of their premium DLC SKUs, which Ubisoft always does well on. They're good at upsell at the point of conversion. Hey, like instead of $50 by premium pass, get to 80, but still a base skew at 50 seems strange to me and cutting down time seems strange to me. This feels like a weird place from Yubi. Hmm. I think that makes sense. I'm going to go a little bit side quest on this, but I'm shooting for this segment to be an entertainment value of an A minus because I'm going to do a little bit of a rant. So the Assassin's Creed mobile game is called Codename Jade or Jade Inferno would be a much better name. It's in closed beta this week and it goes through August 11th. 
So the beta is only available in North America and Western Europe, but apparently it's not for anyone named Jen Donahoe who submitted my email through a hard to figure out working website. They asked questions about my location, my device, what game I played. And in their website, they said, even if you don't get in, we're going to send you an email and you're going to know. I had no word for them. I didn't get in this beta. I went through all of this work, like no communication. Like, fuck you guys. I am so pissed off. I guess I can go see videos of gameplay online. Oh, wait, Ubisoft is having those videos taken down. So in my best Cress exacerbated tone, absolutely what the fuck is going on? Rant, rant, rant. I am so pissed off. Please do not treat your players like this. Like if I was a regular player, I mean, I can't imagine all of the people who are just like, I'm not, I'm not even going to like go forward and play your game. So this is just a lesson in community management. I'm going to calm down now. I'm going to center myself. Just if you're going to commit to communicating with your players, do what you commit to do. It's like very basic stuff. So hopefully that was an A minus. Laura, how did I do? Should I curse some more? I think it was perfect. All I want to say is someone at Ubisoft, please send Jen an invite. Yeah. Please send her an invite. So even if I didn't select the right criteria, tell me I didn't. Just tell me. You have to ask it in French. That's how you get it. S'il vous plaît. S'il vous plaît, send me a fucking code. (laughs) Rant over. All right. Moving on to Baldur's Gate 3. So Baldur's Gate 3 is a very big role-playing game that's out today, drawing more than 340,000 concurrent players three hours after full launch. It is a PlayStation 5 console exclusive for the remainder of the year. So they managed to reach more than half a million concurrent players only 24 hours after release. The in-game peak player count sits at just under 600,000 with the number slowly increasing over time. That makes Baldur's Gate 3 the second biggest Steam launch of the year, with Hogwarts Legacy coming in first, with concurrent players at just under 900,000. And Sons of the Forest in third, with just above 400,000. So I checked up on this. A lot of my friend group is playing this. It actually hit 800,000 concurrent on Steam when I checked last night. And it's also getting a 96% Metacritic. On LinkedIn and other places, you know, many folks in the industry are calling this one of the best RPGs of all time. So perhaps I need to start playing this. I love RPGs. I I know from earlier (laughs) in our conversation, it might not seem like that. Like I grew up playing wizardry, like the father or mother, whichever one of, of all RPGs. So, all right, maybe I need to get going in here. But what I wanted to talk a little bit about was many people do or don't know that this is part of the Dungeons and Dragons D&D franchise. And that franchise and that brand has had a lot of challenges lately. So I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, something that happened back in January, and I promise I'll tie it back together. So back in January, Hasbro, who is the parent company, WotC or Wizards of the Coast or Wizards, they own Dungeons and Dragons, the brand. So they were going to make some changes to what's called the Open Gaming License or OGL. So the OGL provides this legal framework by which all of the fans and community have been able to build their own tabletop RPGs alongside the brand. And this was really the backbone of the industry. This is how a lot of dungeon masters go out there and have, you know, dungeons experiences, D&D experiences, you know, even online. There's a lot of Zoom-oriented games that happen with this. So the potential changes to the OGL leaked and the community just absolutely revolted. 
the, the changes would have created a really adversarial relationship between wizards and the community. It was going to clamp down on what the community was going to be able to do with the brand, how they were going to be able to kind of sell their services. So instead, what's happened is the D&D exec producer had to come out, make a public apology. Wizards eventually announced that they were actually not going to make any changes to the OGL and they actually decided to make it more open. And they tried to open up the brand and say, hey, 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 actually, yes, we're very friendly. We're very friendly. However, it seems that the damage to the community might have already been done. So a few months later, in March, the Honor Among Thieves D&D movie came out. It was very critically acclaimed and only did like $200 million worldwide grossing. And so did the community revolt actually take down the movie at the box office? Maybe. I saw it. It was actually really good. Chris Pine was in it. You would think that fans of the franchise would really be into that. Instead, it didn't do that well. So why am I telling you this story about tabletop D&D? I think it all goes back to community. And it was my rant earlier on Codename Jade from Assassin's Creed. You cannot screw over your community and expect them to stick with you. There's only so much that they can take before they start revolting on you. Video game communities, RPG, tabletop communities, everyone kind of behaves the same way. It's the lifeblood of your business. So just a couple of ways to think about community. You have to work with them, not against them. If you want to make changes to what you're doing, be thoughtful about it. Bring them in. Even consider doing like a VIP panel or group. Have them sign an NDA and say, listen, I'm going to tell you secrets but we want your opinions. So come in and talk to us. Then we'll give you exclusive information. You can go back out to your channel and talk about. I actually did this at Scopely on a number of the games. It was incredibly successful because these community members become your advocates. So for these high quality releases, you know, once you have these types of products, you have these types of input from the community, you know, it can really help you think about how you go forward. So don't forget about the community, really bring them in. So just a few tips for you and sorry for the the long story going into a completely adjacent category, but it all kind of ties back together. I second that. And, you know, having done also those community things, but more from product management perspective, kind of bringing in usually those engaged players and guild leaders and so forth to talk because they tell the way they play the game is totally different than you would ever imagine. And like, you can be so engaged. Another group that you should be bringing early on are influencers or streamers, however you want to put it. Like Those are very powerful. And especially if you want to sort of build an organic streamer base or a group that is going to promote your game when it comes out in a real way, not in a way that here's 100,000 for one video, you should bring them early, get their feedback, make them part of your development and get their help in making the game streamable and powerful. So not only the community, but both community and influencers if possible. I'm depending, of course, what kind of a game you're making. For that movie, Jen, so I just had a quick peek. It came out a week before Super Mario Brothers. I wonder how much that impacted the gross sales. I got slaughtered. Different audiences. Different audiences. You think so? I don't know. The release window D&D was in was very crowded, and it suffered, I think, significantly because of it. It wasn't just Super Mario. There were other things going on during that period. It got squeezed. It was unfortunate. And the marketing campaign for Super Mario was very good. They made a big deal about it beforehand. I don't remember seeing much for D&D. I remember looking at the movie thinking, oh, it's probably going to be very good. Hey, game devs. Are you tired of dealing with complicated payment processes all over the world? 
Well, Exola's got your back with Exola PayStation. It has a simple, user-friendly interface that makes it easy for players to pay for your games and in-game content however they want. And because the Exola PayStation user interface is adaptive and accessible on smartphones, tablets, and PCs, your players will have a seamless experience no matter their preferred device. Players can save their favorite payment methods for future purchases, and on mobile, even charge purchases directly to their phone carrier bill. On the back end, you can customize your checkout with game-specific integration options like sidebars and iframes, as well as change colors, fonts, and images to make PayStation look and feel like a natural part of your game. Ready to see Exola's PayStation in action? Visit exola.pro slash payments DOF or visit the link in this podcast description. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing the full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. All right, speaking of Super Mario Brothers, we're going to talk about Nintendo and mobile. So our friend Neil at mobilegamer.biz covered Nintendo's mobile earnings. Nintendo's mobile products have earned $1.4 billion over the last eight years, or from 2016, and that roughly translates to about $175 million a year business. And thanks to Data AI for that info. And while that sounds good on the surface, what's clear in those charts is that there is a downward trend in revenue. Most of their games, specifically Super Mario Run, Mario Kart Tour, and Animal Crossing Pocket Camp, those are all shark fins. So they had a great initial revenue spike followed by a drop and then slow decline from there. Fire Emblem is their strongest title, followed by Mario Kart Tour. Animal Crossing's after that, then surprisingly Dragalia lost. So it's interesting because when I looked at this, I was shocked to see that the initial spikes, those of those shark fins of Mario Kart and Animal Crossing were enough to out-revenue Dragalia lost. I was not expecting that when I took a look. So Nintendo's mobile business is in decline while practically every other part of its business is booming. While the report doesn't say that outright, it does explain that the movie Super Mario Brothers, which is grouped in with mobile sales, did very well. And combined with the data AI charts, you can kind of piece it together. Just one quote. In the first quarter of this fiscal year, both sales and profits were notably large for a first quarter, mainly due to the concurrent releases of the Super Mario Brothers movie and The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. And we made steady progress towards our full year earnings forecast. So taking a step back, we have this like wildly successful creative company. They've created multiple forever franchises that succeed across most platforms like console movies, 
My two key questions I'd love to explore with this group are, why has mobile been such a struggle? And then what is then the right strategy for Nintendo Mobile? Phil, I choose you. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't think <laughs> there is a strategy here. I don't think they give a shit. They've never given a shit. And they are at all-time highs when it comes to operating profit, when it comes to operating profit ratio, when it comes to highest net sales was actually a little bit earlier during the Wii era. But like this is their second great resurgence. They're living it up. They're wasting time on things like theme parks, which are super fun and are great. They're wasting time on Hollywood movies that will like pop and then be done after they get two or three sequels out there. Like they have a lot of like really fun things they're doing, but they don't seem to be interested in mobile. They think it tarnishes the brand. They gave it a shot with Super Mario Run, which was the original shareware game that got a shit ton of downloads. They did nothing with it. Mario Kart actually made some money. Our Mario Kart made some money on mobile despite being a sub-based game, and they could have taken a real shot at Kart Rider Plus, which is a monster Korean franchise that does over a billion dollars a year in revenue. Could have been a direct competitor for that. Nope, don't care. They just see it as a brand risk, and they're wrong, but they won't change until there needs to be a reason to change, unless there's a crisis. And someone will take advantage of that crisis, and I think they'll get some IP out there in a more traditional free-to-play mobile sense. But until then, like as long as the profits keep rising, there's no discipline for them. There's parts that I would definitely agree with. I mean, that announcement when they said they were going into mobile, I feel like part of me just thinks they just didn't take it seriously enough. They don't think they tried hard enough. I imagine if I was going to look at their editing room floor, it would look nothing like Netflix in terms of all of these bets. I don't think there's been many fails that have been like kind of scattered across that have this graveyard of old titles. It might break the correction streak, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's definitely a little bit due to the strategy and approach. I took a peek. They seem to have three deal types. They've licensed out their IP, as you mentioned, like Niantic that we've seen for Pokemon Go. They've co-developed with some sort of other internal development studio or co-developed with a third party. There's only one pattern I could pick out is that Nintendo likes to keep their developers close. And in those co-development situations, they usually own a full or partial stake. It's not of that studio. It's not every case, but many. And then looking at like the type of deal and then what worked. So Pokemon Go, over a billion dollars. Niantic, that's full IP license. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Fire Emblem was developed by Intelligent Systems, but 800 million a year in lifetime revenue. And that's one of their kind of under the wing studios. I can't really see like what the win streak is on a- approach here. What they would do differently. And I had, oh God, I spent so much time going down the rabbit hole of like old Nintendo games. And I wish Ethan were here because I feel like this is an equation of core fantasy, correct mechanics and porting. What I would do if I were them is look at lifetime sales, what are their biggest franchises? I would start with those and then maybe add in a couple other franchises that may work well with mobile. Biggest ones, obviously, Mario, Pokemon, Zelda, Animal Crossing. And then other ones that I think would be good for mobile would be Pikmin, Xenoblade, and Rhythm Heaven. I think they should experiment. I think they should do what Netflix is doing. Keep it exploratory. Keep it broad. Look for teams that have a specific vision, maybe a passion for one of the IPs. For them, the challenge will be monetization. They don't have a platform. It doesn't have to be IAP focused. They could do something with ads. Rhythm Heaven had hyper casual vibes when I took a look at it again. That would, there's a mobile audience for that. It would be great for quick, easy. It'd be perfect for TikTok. You could make some really weird stuff and then open it up as a user generated content engine. Imagine making little, like people making doodles and having the ability to do kind of one tap mechanics. I feel like there is a way and I'm surprised they haven't done it. And then kind of just going back again, just finding the right teams to do this. The only other thing I will mention is experiences do not need to be in parity. So if we think back to browser versus mobile, 
the games that we played on like Facebook, when they were eventually ported to mobile, were not always exactly the same experience. And that's okay. It was adapted for the platform. So for this version one for them, we're not trying to go for true cross-platform that doesn't have to be first iteration. I would just figure out what works for mobile with those IPs and then worry about the rest later. Anyway, Jen, I want to hear what you think about this too. Oh, here, masterclass. I don't even know what I should add to that. I should just give you an exclamation point and say, do all that. So the point that I want to make and kind of double down on a point you made was the lack of developer experience with the platform and all of the challenges and benefits that we have mobile folks deal with every day, the Nintendo folks who are making these games might not always see. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about the licensed ones. I'm talking about you know, more of Nintendo trying to do it themselves or in a co-dev situation. So for story time, when I went into Riot, Riot hadn't launched any of the mobile games yet. And I was working with some of the most talented PC developers in the world, right? Like these are gold standard, you know, S tier, S plus tier folks. But many of them hate mobile. They hated mobile games. They felt like it was demeaning in the idea of gaming and This is really coming from them just not really knowing the platform, knowing how players can really love these platforms, knowing what works well on these platforms and seeing the benefits of these platforms. So I had to do a little bit of like Professor Jen mobile education classes, really helping them to see the benefits in addition to the challenges as well, but helping them to see where we could really take and innovate inside of mobile. And, you know, the message to them was like, hey, you guys were innovative in the world of PC, in the world of business models, establishing customization. Why don't we look at mobile as the new frontier where we can go and do that? And so when you kind of position it to them, they're like, yeah, let's take this hill, let's do it. So that was kind of the birth of a lot of how we took some of the mobile games to market. Now, I think Cress would argue that many of those games aren't like massively successful in terms of revenue, I would say perhaps that is right if that's the lens that you're looking. But you can have a different strategy as to how these mobile games can fit into the portfolio. They could be great for certain regions that aren't PC focused. They can be fans of the movie. Like for us, Arcane, the TV series Arcane, it was a way for some players to get in to the Riot ecosystem through a little bit more of an accessible platform. So maybe for the Super Mario movie, maybe a bunch of kids picked up Super Mario Kart and you know started to Mario Kart and engaged with it on that platform. So I think Nintendo is missing the mobile whisperer who can come in and help these traditional console folks really see the magic of mobile and how their IP and their brand can kind of come together. I'll kind of leave it there. We need a mobile whisperer to help Nintendo developers. And that's Laura from Laura's <laughs> rant earlier, everybody. Shout out to Laura for whispering about mobile. If I can add something to it, it would be more like zoom out a little bit and talk about why console developers overall are looking into mobile. I was going through NewZoo's latest report and they talked about console being the biggest revenue growth vehicle in 2023 with a 7% year-over-year growth. But when, again, you start zooming out a little bit, you start understanding that consoles actually underperformed in 21 and 22 due to the uh, several development and re- release delays, as well as all the supply chain issues that, for example, prevented PlayStation 5 of being sold widely to the audience that wanted it. So the growth of 2023 is really driven by games that should have launched in 21 or 22, And that's why this is going to be a very big year. But 
you start kind of looking into the future and you can see the 26 is going to be probably a big year because the new generations will come out then for consoles. So 24 and 25 are going to be a little bit of a challenging years for these developers. And what I think is that the console developers, Nintendo included, are figuring out what they can do for these two years to kind of maintain the growth and not see that big decline that they're probably going to get otherwise. And so the solutions there are naturally to diversify monetization. So go towards games as a service models, which we are seeing them doing with all these microtransactions. And they're trying to kind of do both. They're trying to sell the game and do the microtransactions on top of it because that's the model they're afraid to go full free to play. Then there's transmedia that we've briefly talked about, and I'm in Phil's camp on this, meaning that we are at, <laughs> not the, not the uh, non-believers, but the skeptical hippos of transmedia. Show me the model, the attribution model. <laughs> exactly. So let's just. Oh, look you're at, killing me. Yeah, we're, we're having our skeptical me. hippo eyes. Like, L- look course. at the one week increase in Witcher PSU when the TV show came out. Isn't that incredible? Let's write a venture beat post based on this. Yeah, like like few more copies sold of an old game because of a show. I'm not saying that the shows can be great and so forth, but it, but really have to knock it out the park as an entertainment show as it is to get meaningful revenue from it. And then you got you know the theme parks and so forth. Let's not even talk about that. And then you have mobile, which is. of the revenue. So if you look at the whole pie, console 30%, PC 20%, mobile 50%. And of course, bringing your franchises onto mobile, getting a share of that revenue is the best way to keep the growth ongoing until the next generation. And there's, you know, companies like Activision that's shown that this is a a solid strategy. So I think that's why that's what we're seeing about these news. And and the options, as, as Laura pointed out, it's like licensing, which Nintendo has been doing successfully. It's co-development, which they are been doing successfully. M&A, which I don't think Nintendo is really looking into it. That's not their jam. And internal development, as Jen was pointing out, if you're a console developer, chances are you're allergic to mobile games. So that's going to be tough. Yeah, so Nintendo going for co-development, going for licensing, and I think it's all about the uh, dollar bills. But if you ask them if they had mobile, I think they would respond, yeah, we, we got mobile. What are you talking about? You can take the Switch up and you can take it anywhere you want. You you can buy the Switch Lite right now. They, they have mobile. And I, I know it sounds like a cop-out, but I think that's what Nintendo would respond. And like, look it, we just sold the most copies we've ever sold in Pikmin 4. You know, that's a significant increase in revenue for us. Like, that's the monetization strategy is ship a lot of units and then ship first-party IP. Like, this has always been their playbook. And they dip their toes into mobile, like, and they're fucking incredible amount of downloads, right? Super Mario Run, despite being a piece of shit, got a, a fuck ton of downloads. And so did Mario Kart to add on to that. The challenge with them is always down to live service and monetization. I, I can't even think of a single time they've sold hard currency in any one of their games, like a traditional virtual currency skew. I, I think, again, it's got to be a crisis for them to change if they want to change at all. But at the end of the day, like they're riding on highs. Maybe. I still think the mobile, getting the revenue out of that. It's like the additional revenue showing the growth until you get the next generation out. That's the big strategy. I think that's why console companies are gung-ho about this. It's the best way to get there. Transmedia is also helpful because of the PR effect. And that pushes to the shareholders like, hey, look at this. We're coming up with all these shows, these movies. It's going to have huge effects. Don't worry. Don't tank the stock. And on that note, thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Peace. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. 
Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.